One way you could say what we're doing this morning with the, the aspects of this story that we're looking at today is we're taking the, the popular phrase today, YOLO, if you've ever heard it, Y-O-L-O, you only live once. Uh, we're taking it and we're, we're taking a hammer to it this morning. We are going to destroy YOLO. If any of you are tired of hearing that on the internet, we're going to do our best to destroy it this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, there's a popular phrase that people say today. Young people say it a lot. A lot of people of all ages on the internet say it often. Uh, Y-O-L-O, you only live once, YOLO. Uh, and it's the new way of saying what people have said maybe since the beginning, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Uh, it's a hopeless and despairing way of looking at life that then says, well, since I'm going to die one day, might as well something, right? And so you'll see videos online of somebody who, I don't know, jumps into a big beehive or something and just says, YOLO, you only live once, or like something reckless and ridiculous. And then you, if you're into that, you get to watch somebody get stung by a bunch of bees. Uh, or you might see someone who, who is trying to inspire you and might say, you know, you, you only get one life, so make it an exceptional life, make it a great life. And that feels great when you're, when you're 15 or 20 and you're like, yeah, I got my one life ahead of me and I'm going to make it great. But it, it doesn't feel as great. I can testify to this now. It doesn't feel as great when you're 40 and you're looking around and you're saying, well, I guess this is my life, right? This is, this is my one life and I only get one. And I'm told it really doesn't feel great when you're 80 and you're looking back and you're saying, well, that was that was my life. That was my one life, right? Uh, so it sounds so inspiring at first, but hidden in it is the message that we are all going to die. Uh, it's a despairing way of looking at life. And it's what we are called to turn from when First Peter says that in Christ we have been born again to a living hope. Now, the idea of being born again just crushes the whole you only live once thing at all. I've been born a second time, so here I am on version 2.0 already. Uh, but what are we born again to? We're born again to a living hope, to something we can look forward to in the future and say, what is coming for me is better than anything anybody has right now. So now, all of a sudden, I don't have to live the most exceptional and awesome life and all of my dreams don't have to come true because what's best is waiting for me. And maybe it's not such a good idea to jump into that beehive after all because I'm actually headed somewhere and there is meaning to everything in my life. That's where we're going to get this morning. That's what Joseph is going to show us this morning. If you are just joining us, we are walking through the last major section of the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph and his brothers. This is a story in which Joseph is made like Jesus in many ways that Christians are made like Jesus. And so we have found all along the way many ways that he looks like Christ and many ways that we kind of feel like him too because we are being made like him as well. So far we have seen him hated and betrayed by his brothers and sold for silver as Jesus was. He was sold into slavery, Joseph was. He goes to Egypt and lives there in slavery for a while, doing well as a household servant, but then is falsely accused as Jesus was and thrown into the pit proverbially as Jesus was. 
Uh, then he gets some hope when Pharaoh's officials are put into the prison for a little bit and one of them gets lifted back up to Pharaoh's side to place the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And so maybe this cupbearer will remember me, but Joseph is forgotten. And so there he is, left in the prison, left to rot in the prison, so to speak. And now we begin to see his fortunes turn in a way that Jesus' fortunes turned in a way that ours will as well. Let's read Genesis 41. It's a bit of a long chapter. We'll read the whole thing this morning. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I woke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk full and good. Seven ears withered and thin, blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there is none who could explain it to me. And then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty through all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt." 
The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, that God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming up and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve of the land against the seven years of famine that are about to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all the people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride around in his second chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave to him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the servants, uh, service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in the great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget my hardship in all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There is famine in all the lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So through Joseph's exaltation, the Spirit calls us today to look up to the truly exalted one, Jesus Christ, and to hope in the day when we are made like him. Now, as I said last week, the big picture of what's going on here is given to us in Philippians chapter 2, 
where Christians are told to have among ourselves the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He was, though he was very God himself, willing to be lowered to a form of servitude, that is, taking on human flesh and living with us upon earth. And Philippians uses the word servant to describe the nature he took on there. And then, being found in the likeness of man, was willing to be lowered even to the pit of death. From there, it says, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above all names so that every knee would bow before him. We're seeing a very concrete picture of this when Joseph is unwillingly lowered to servitude and then unwillingly lowered to a place that he calls the pit, that is Pharaoh's prison, but then lifted up above everyone, given authority over everyone so that every knee bows to him. Now, Genesis has begun in chapter 3 by telling us to long for a day when a mighty Savior King comes and rescues the earth from all of its problems. Genesis is closing now by giving us a very detailed picture of what that King will be like. What's one way he will be like this? He will be lowered and then lowered again, but then lifted up above all. So there is a picture of Jesus Christ given to us in Joseph And it is also a picture of the church as we are being made like Christ the same way that Joseph was made like Christ. You will find very many similarities to this in your own life as well. So we're going to walk through, find three ways that Joseph is very much like Jesus and we are like Jesus in these ways too. Uh, The first we'll see in verse 14. In verse 14, you'll see that the Pharaoh very quickly lifts Joseph up from the pit and then he arrays him in very splendid clothing, cleans him up, basically, and then Pharaoh is brought into the presence of the king. Now, the phrase, the pit, that Joseph is in, uh, this is a phrase used in the Old Testament for any really despairing situation, especially for death. You can think especially of the Psalms that use the phrase, the pit, very often. The pit almost encompassed me and the dates of, gates of death encompassed me. Or at one point we praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pit and it's death that they're talking about. Or you may be very familiar with Psalm 40. Uh, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He pulled me up out of the pit of destruction and he set my feet upon the rock. So when we hear about a pit like this, we think of any despairing place, especially of death, the ultimate place of despair, when you can no longer do anything for yourself. Joseph is pulled out of this pit quickly. It says they quickly went and sent for Joseph, and he is very quickly placed above everyone. And so we gather from that, our first point today, that God's anointed one will be lifted up from the pit and clothed in splendor. Israel is being taught to look forward to a great and mighty anointed one by God who will be lifted from the pit and clothed in splendor. And this is exactly what happens when their mighty king comes, isn't it? Jesus isn't just lowered to living in human form on earth, stubbing his toe and getting sick like the rest of us, having problems like the rest of us. If he had done that and lived forever, he would have given up so much and we would be so amazed at what he sacrificed for us. But from there, he was willing to be lowered all the way to death, even death on a cross. And then he's put in a tomb and they seal the tomb and there lay his body lifeless in human strength, at least unable to raise up from the dead. 
But he was very God of very God. And his father looked down and in a moment, quickly called him up, right? And there he is. He sits right up and he walks right out of the tomb in victory and in splendor. And he's described in this resurrected state as having a glorified body and being clothed in dazzling clothes. We read a picture of him in Revelation, probably a symbolic picture, but he's wearing a long and wonderful robe and he has a golden sash on, arrayed in golden attire. As Joseph is here, and even later, Joseph will be given a golden chain and even more royal attire. So we're getting concrete pictures here of Jesus' very quick and sudden resurrection from the dead. This applies to Christians as well. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ, right? Christ is the heir of God the Father, the Son, meaning that God the Father will give everything to the Son, the heir. And we are co-heirs alongside of him. What does it look like to be a a co-heir with Jesus? Well, Paul says that provided we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. So we we have suffered with Christ. We've talked much about that in recent weeks. If we suffer with him like this and cling to him, we will also be glorified with him. What will that look like? Well, it will look a little bit like what happened to Joseph. Unless the Lord returns before the day of our death, if we die in Christ Jesus clinging to him, then we, our bodies at least, will lay there, helpless, almost forgotten, you might say. Now our souls will be in heaven with the Lord, but our bodies will lay there. And in a moment, the Father will call for us and say, get up and walk, right? He will raise us right from the pit. Uh, The teaching of this in the scriptures is that the Lord will return with the, the cry of a trumpet and the cry of a command And all of the believers who have gone on before us will rise from the dead and will meet him in the air. So he's coming down. They are going up like a welcoming party to meet him. And then after they have met him there, all of us who are left here still alive and haven't died before he came back, then we will be brought up to meet him. And so it says we will always be with the Lord. So risen from the dead, this is the great hope given to Christians as well. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, the first fruits among many. And to be a co-heir with him means to be pulled up out of the pit in one quick and sudden day, one quick and sudden movement. That means that the graveyard even down the street and the one on 135, there are a few on 135 over there, and any that you may have passed to come here. Uh, If you drove from south on 31, you passed the Dairy Queen there, And then after that, you passed a really beautiful and very crowded-looking cemetery. Um, That means that for every one of those people who died with their faith in Jesus Christ, they're there, like Joseph, in the pit for a while until they are called up out of it. This is really incredible to think about because I wonder if we could say one name that's written on one of those tombstones. Every one of those has a name. Every one of those has a body under it. I couldn't tell you one name. I wonder if you could name one name from that cemetery. But the Lord looks down upon every one of them that died with faith in him and says, I remember their names. And on the day that I have appointed, 
I will call them up just like Pharaoh called up Joseph from the pit. It will be done with just a word. Pharaoh's speaking one word, call Joseph up, and boom, it's done. Right? Joseph couldn't do it himself, but Pharaoh could look down and say, I'm calling you up, and it's called up. It will feel long in coming, like Joseph's time in the pit felt long in coming. We have been waiting so far 2,000 years for this day. And this story we read began with the words, after two whole years, right? So we groan with how long Joseph waited there. After he had already been imprisoned for a long time, it will feel late in coming, but it will happen in a moment as they quickly pulled Joseph up out of the pit. Now that very truth there, that it's going to feel late in coming, and the Lord is patient, he is not slow about his promise, that pushes back against the American spirit a bit. Because our spirit here as Americans is, I know things are going to look up real soon, right? Like, the Colts are going to be great next year, right? Like, that's how we roll every time, right? We will get them next year. We're right around the corner. Things are about to get awesome, right? I'm suffering now. I'm struggling now. But tomorrow, it's going to be great. Other nations make fun of this for our short-term optimism that we have here in the States. But this is how we live. And the truth is, next week might be better than this week. Or next week might be worse than this week, right? And we don't know, do we? But if we free ourselves from short-term hope and say, oh, everything's going to be okay because next week is going to be better than this week. Next year is going to be better than this year. If we can free ourselves from that, we can look long-term and play the long game and say, I know the final destination. I know where this is headed. Yeah, things will get harder and they will get harder and eventually I'll be lowered into the ground, but I will be raised up. So that means... Next year doesn't have to be better than this year. And next week doesn't have to be better than this week. Because now we're freed from short-term hope and short-term optimism because we've got the long-term. In the same way that when Joseph was lifted up, he was given splendid clothes and cleaned up, brought before him. Uh, In the same way, when we are risen from the dead, church, uh, we will be given a new and glorified body And some form of splendid clothes. We have a glimpse of this in Revelation. The saints clothed in white robes. Probably symbolic because it says they represent the righteous deeds of the saints. But in some way we will be clothed in splendor. And given a body that is full of glory. The very best physical feature you have right now. Every feature of your body in that day will be more glorious than that very best feature you have right now. There will be no part of that resurrected body that will be inconvenient, that won't work right, uh, that will be painful or that will break down over time. It will be imperishable. And there will be no part of that resurrected body that you could be embarrassed about or ashamed of because it will have no flaws. It will be perfect and imperishable. We are sown perishable, but raised imperishable, right? Sown even in shame, but raised in glory. And that difference is going to be a lot like the difference between Joseph down in the dirty, grungy prison and Joseph 
cleaned up, shaven, and given nice clothes to stand in front of the king. It'll be so different that if you were to see it now, you would think of it as superhuman. You say, well, what is this superhero? Is this a God that I am in front of? But it's, no, it's the body that is waiting for you, Christian, at the resurrection of the dead, glorified and perfect. And so there's the first point. God's anointed one, both Joseph, Jesus Christ, and his anointed ones here will be lifted from the pit and clothed in splendor. Is your faith in Christ Jesus for this kind of eternal life, for this kind of resurrection of the dead? I'll call you trust in this Jesus for eternal life. Let's move on to our second point. So Joseph gives to Pharaoh an interpretation of his dream. He says there's going to be seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. We went through some of this last week, right? So store up grain during the seven years of plenty, then you'll have food for everyone during the seven years of famine. Appoint somebody wise and discerning to rule over the whole thing and to do it. And Pharaoh says, this is wise. I'm pleased with this. But I've got a twist for you, Joseph. You are the one that I choose to set over my kingdom. And then we read through verses 40 to 44, it's just said over and over again, five or six different ways of saying that Pharaoh set Joseph over the whole kingdom. First, he sets him over the kingdom. Then he says, moreover, I see I have set you over the kingdom. And then uh, he gives to him his signet ring. And then he has him go behind him in the chariot and everyone bows the knee to Joseph. So over and over again, it's repeated a pretty great point of emphasis here. Joseph is put over the whole kingdom of Egypt. And so from that, we get the second point today. God will give his anointed one all authority so that every knee bows before him. God will give his anointed one all authority so that every knee will bow before him. Acts chapter 2 says that the resurrection of Jesus, which we just talked about, vindicates Jesus' lordship over all. It proves that he is Lord over all. This is Peter who says this. He stands up at a sermon in Pentecost and he speaks to the, to the very group of people who consented to the crucifixion of Jesus. And he says, know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. So he's made him Lord and Christ by raising him from the dead. So that resurrection then verifies that he is the Lord of all creation. And it is shortly after his resurrection that he goes to his disciples and says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the picture we have now then, the best picture we could have of him seated on the throne in heaven right now is of every knee there bowing to him. There are pictures of this sometimes in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 is a really popular one of the Lord seated on the throne, arrayed in splendor, and the train of his robe fills up the whole temple. And there are these creatures there, seraphim, which seraph means fiery one, so some kind of fiery, flaming creature. We can only imagine what it might be like with six wings before him, uh, the top two wings covering the top half of their body and the bottom two wings covering the bottom half of their body and then two wings left over to fly and they're just encircling this throne, covering themselves before his glory and bowing down before him. 
Pictures in Revelation of the 24 elders bowing down before him, people taking off their their crowns before him and before his throne. Up in heaven, every knee is bowing before this Jesus. And he is placed over all, ordering all of the affairs of nations on earth for the good of his church on the last day. If that is what is happening in heaven... And if he will return one day with a trumpet shout and a cry of command, just as Joseph was sent all through Egypt in a chariot with them shouting out, bow their knees. So if everyone is bowing to him in heaven and one day everyone on earth will bow to him, what you must do is bow to this Jesus Christ today. He will come back and we will acknowledge his authority then. He may come back as enemy, as one I have been running from the whole time. Or he will receive you back if you will return to him now as friend, as, as forgiven one, and bow your knee to him now. So don't wait till he comes back to bow to him. No, no, bow your knee before him now. Worship him now. Give him lordship over your life even now. So that's how Joseph in his exaltation over everybody looks a little bit like Jesus over everybody, every knee bowing to him. And the really amazing thing is that Jesus would share that authority with his church after he returns. Uh, It says in Revelation at one point that uh, uh, the saints come to life and reign with him. It says, I quoted earlier, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Many places all around the New Testament, we see that 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 dominion over all the earth, he will share it with his church. Uh, We were made originally for this, right? Adam and Eve placed in the garden, given dominion over all of the earth. And the church one day will have that dominion that was granted to Adam and Eve, dominion over all of the earth. We get a little picture of this in the parable of the talents where Jesus talks about a man who goes away to be given a kingdom and he gives his servants one talent, five talents, ten talents. Those are really valuable coins and he leaves to go receive his kingdom. And when he comes back, the man with ten talents has invested it wisely and he's made ten more. He's got twenty now to give back to his Lord. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful a little. I'm going to set you over 10 cities in my kingdom. And the other man who had five, he's made five more. And so Jesus says to him, well done to you. I will set you over five cities. And a whole lot more being taught there. But the, the idea is our faithfulness with what we're given in this life, it's little, right? We have little to work with. But much responsibility will be given to us in that coming kingdom in proportion to how much we had here and how faithful we were with it. So some will be great in this kingdom and some will be lesser in this kingdom, but the very lowest of us will still have authority over all of the earth, all the creatures in the sea, all the creatures on the land, all the birds in the sky, and all of the heavenly creatures. So you may then, in that new kingdom, if you're a believer, that flaming seraph creature we talked about a minute ago, you may have one come right to you in the morning and just bow right before you and put its wings before you and say, good morning, ma'am. Good morning, sir. Can I get you anything? It says, we will judge angels. We'll be given authority over angels. 
you might go and walk around Yosemite if it's still there. I don't know if it'll still be there or not, but let's say it is. You're walking around Yosemite and you hear large paw prints just running for you, coming for you, so excited to see you. And you look and you realize the paw prints are a black bear just gunning for you, right? It comes right up to you and puts its head down to the ground and bows before you because it wants you to scratch its head. Scratch its head. And then you look in its mouth and you realize why it ran to you. It found a cluster of your favorite berries and it brought them to you. So it lifts up and you take them and eat them. Dominion over all the creatures on the earth, all the creatures of heaven as heaven and earth are joined in this everlasting kingdom. It's hard to picture what that's going to look like, isn't it? I mean, I had to get real fanciful there with Yosemite. It's going to look a little bit like Joseph being lifted over all taken around in that chariot and everyone bowing their knee to him. So if your life has not turned out the way you wanted it to, take heart, right? Great things are coming down the road for you. We don't have to cry out YOLO and do something dumb, right? We can instead take hope in the future and find meaning in every ounce of suffering here today. Okay, last point. This one's much shorter. The famine comes, and in verse 54 the people begin to look to Pharaoh and Joseph for food. They go to Pharaoh and they cry out because they're all starving. And the Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. And then we learn in verse 57 later that the whole earth begins to do this. So all the known world, anybody who can make it to Egypt, they find out that Egypt has food and everybody is going there to receive bread so that they can live. We, we pull from that the last point this morning, which is that the nations will come to God's anointed one to receive the bread of life. Bread is a symbol of life often in the Bible. Uh, you can think of Isaiah where the Lord says, why are you spending your wages on what isn't bread? Like you're eating what isn't food. Uh, come to me instead with no money and buy and eat. So he would give to his people life for free. And instead, they're spending their money on things that aren't going to keep them alive. This is something of what Jesus means when he refers to himself as the bread of life. Right? If, if you eat of that bread, you will never hunger. The idea here is that we are all starving long term. Right? Now, we can go eat bread and live for another day. But what we can't do is sustain ourselves forever because we've sinned against God and the wages of sin is death. And so if the gift of God is eternal life, one way that gift is going to refer to himself, Jesus will refer to himself as the bread of life. He says, come and take and come and eat and be satisfied and be sustained forever and live forever. So when we get this picture first of the nation he's part of, coming to him saying we're starving would you feed us he says yes go to joseph what he says to you do and then all the nations of the earth coming to him and saying we're starving would you give us bread and the one high above all says yes i have set up a plan go to joseph i have a way to feed you what he says to you do this is a picture of first the jewish people and now every nation on earth coming to God saying, we are starving. We are going to die if you do not give us the bread of life. 
and God in heaven saying, I've set up a way for you to be fed. Go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. And so I call you, if you would acknowledge your hunger, we don't want to admit that we're starving before God, if you would acknowledge your hunger, go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. And receive from him the bread of life.